Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In recent years, the struggle against discrimination and oppression based on gender and sexual orientation has developed into mass movements in numerous countries. It is becoming increasingly clear that the struggle against systemic oppression is a struggle against capitalism. In this talk, Comrade Coral discusses the LGBTQ struggle and the fight for socialism. So in the past 50 years or so, there have been great strides uh, forward in achieving equal rights and for lesbians, gay men, bisexual, transgender people, and all other sexual minorities. So compared to our not-so-distant past, uh, today LGBT people comprise a more visible and a more confident layer of society, we can say. But obviously, despite this immense progress, the world kind of remains uh, largely a dangerous place for many of us. So homosexuality and any related behavior still remains illegal uh, in over 70 countries where the punishment ranges from up to 15 years of prison to life imprisonment to even death penalty. So if most, um, in most, if not all these countries, the same repressive legal framework also targets trans people. So as of today, only 29 countries uh, recognize same-sex marriage, and even in places where legal protections exist, discrimination takes on many forms. So for example, Canada is largely seen as a haven of like, LGBT rights around the world. So according to recent census data, only 5% of the Canadian population makes up the LGBT uh, people, which is, seems low, but you know. But still, around 30% of homeless youth identify as LGBT, so they're far more likely than the general population to experience physical, um, sexual violence, struggle with suicidal ideation, face discrimination in the workplace, in healthcare, in housing. So on a federal level, just as a reminder, conversion therapy remains legal in Canada. And according to the Stats Canada, um, hate crimes targeting sexual orientation have been actually steadily increasing since 2018, and they make up a disproportionate share of violent incidents in the country. So we also see right-wing politicians like Doug Ford in Ontario, Jason Kenney in Alberta, fueling the spread of um, anti-LGBT sentiment across the country. So if the situation was like this in Canada, the supposed haven, then I kind of want to ask, is this really as good as it gets? So for too long, we've seen LGBT politics have been confined in the, to talking about equality and organizing to achieve legal reforms. So Yes, this work is important, and none of us want to go back to the 60s where gay sex was still illegal, or the 80s when AIDS was dubbed as the gay plague. Uh, but the fact that this oppression persists today um, in virtually all walks of life uh, shows that despite our achievements in changing the law, it's not um, a guarantee uh, against discrimination. So what is to be done? So um, the questions are, how can we defend the gains of the movement while still moving forward to true freedom and equality? And why does this movement need to link its struggle with the struggle for socialism? So these are the two questions I would like to answer today. So as socialists, we would like to win a world where we can all be free, regardless of our gender, identity, or sexuality. But one of the biggest questions for anyone involved in the struggle is, where does the LGBT oppression come from? So the biggest answer is quite Simple, I think we've all heard it. They justify their bigotry by saying, LGBT people go against the natural order. There's something unnatural in this. So their argument goes, heterosexuality, and by extension, this strict gender binary, is the natural norm because it leads to reproduction. So I don't think anyone here requires explanation why this is absolute horseshit. 
Um, so homosexuality is observed in many animals and nature. I've all heard about those famous gay penguins, wherever they were. Um, I hope they're doing well. Uh, so not to mention, most straight people use contraceptives or enjoy um, non-procreative sex. This is the best way I could describe it. Yeah, but, so gender and sexuality correspond to a lot more than just making babies, right? So there are complex, uh, multifaceted phenomena with biological, psychological, social components to them. And society can try to exert certain limits, like creating gender roles for two sexes, male, female. But nature doesn't really always comply to these rules, and in fact, even third the curve to them, uh, as we see with the birth of intersex children, uh, which is estimated to be around 1% of all births, by the way. So on top of this, we actually find, across the huge span of human societies, many examples of same-sex relations, uh, gender identities outside the binary being accepted, integrated into everyday life, or even celebrated. Um, so various kinds of two-spirit people have existed in the pre-Columbian Americas, both in the North and the South. Um, similar social realities have existed uh, in Africa, in the Pacific Islands, and South Asia, both historically and to an extent today. Um, and it's important we understand this diversity uh, and variation because it shows that LGBT oppression is not an inevitable, timeless feature of human society. Yet today, this oppression does exist. We can see it. Um, but there's nothing natural about it. In fact, history shows that it is tied to the rise of class society. And this is kind of what I want to go into now. Um, and I will be using the term LGBT kind of as a shorthand, a bit liberally, as they say. Um, but I want to clarify that this term is a modern development and should be considered in the historical context. So for the majority um, of our existence, um, for tens of thousands of years before class society, um, humans lived and organized collectively. So we met the community's needs, uh, material needs like food, shelter, primarily through hunting and gathering. So the lack of any surplus food or wealth meant that there was not really a material basis for a uh, ruling class separate from the rest. So Marx and Engels referred to this class of society as primitive communism. So there was still a division of labor based on sex. Uh, women mostly gathered, while men mostly did the hunting. But we know that this division wasn't strict, and there was no hierarchy or moral judgment attached to these rules. Um, in fact, these societies had a very high respect um, yeah, for women. And actually, for a long time, the forms of family were very different from what we know today. Uh, for a whole period, you had um, group marriage, where a group of men and would be with a group of women. So descent was traceable only through the, uh, on the maternal side. So you had what we call matrilineal societies. Um, so in this arrangement, childcare was not seen as the sole responsibility of the mother, but the entire tribe. So there's actually a very interesting example of this. It's a quote by uh, an indigenous man from a hunter-gatherer tribe in North America talking to a colonial uh, Jesuit missionary. He says, you white people love your own children only. We love the children of the clan. They belong to all the people, and we care for them. White people do not love their children. If children are orphaned, people have to be paid to look after them. We know nothing of such barbarous ideas. So while we shouldn't romanticize hunter-gatherer societies for a variety of reasons, it is true that in these societies, men, women, and everyone else enjoyed relative sexual autonomy, where sexual relationships were not tied into immediate family responsibilities or moral obligations. So sexuality and gender, in some sense, was more diverse. But how do we get from this um, to oppressive moral codes, homophobia, transphobia, that we're all familiar with today? So a crucial shift actually happened uh, 10,000 years ago with the beginnings of agriculture. So with cultivation of crops and livestock, it was now possible to produce a surplus that could be stored. So this 
eventually gave rise to a layer of people whose primary role was to protect, administer, and essentially control this surplus wealth. So this was the beginning of class society, where those controlling the surplus, uh, aka the ruling class, um, developed methods for maintaining the social structure. So including a state apparatus and a reshaping of other institutions, including the unit of family. So in the realm of family and sexuality, Friedrich Engels explained how, as the means of production moved under private ownership, it was now crucial for paternity of children to be guaranteed uh, to prevent multiple claims on um, of inheritance on the wealth of the ruling class. So children began to trace their lineage through the father as opposed to the mother, while monogamy, uh, specifically for women, uh, became more and more enshrined, and collective childcare morphed into the privatized family. Um, combined with the needs uh, for a growing population to work the fields, women's once central role in production and um, in public life um, was reduced to the demands of reproduction. So Engels called this the historic defeat of the female sex. But with the suppression of women also came increasing repression of homosexual behavior or gender variance. So here we see how the superstructure, essentially sexual norms, the monogamous family, the cultural uh, attributes we have of them, arises from the economic foundation, that is the institution of private property. So different class societies across history defined the family or what was sexually permissible uh, according to the demands of their uh, property relations. So in many instances, same-sex relations were actually allowed insofar as they did not challenge these institutions. So very famously, Greeks and Romans um, had a more lax attitude towards homosexuality. We hear this very often because their economies were built on conquest and slave labor. So reproduction of a working population was never central to creating the wealth of their ruling class. Um, although over time, a more repressive set of attitudes developed, particularly in Europe. So the feudal system that would eventually replace slave societies depended on the labor of serfs, um, who were tied to the land and to the lords that owned the land. And they were free to marry and have children, but these children were expected to carry out future labor or military service for, for the Lord. Ten minutes. Um, yes. Uh, in these conditions, reproduction was a moral obligation, and the, any practice not really conforming to this norm was brutally repressed. So you could see this reflected in Christianity as well. The religion soon would stress the duty of men and women to reproduce within wedlock and attack the supposed sins against nature, which was essentially a long catalog of non-procreative sexual acts. So from masturbation to oral sex to female sex. So the situation didn't really get much better uh, for a while under capitalism. So the expansion of the wealth of the new ruling class, the bourgeoisie, uh, relied on wage labor and reproduction of future workers. So in an attempt to maintain control, marriage was turned from a verbal agreement, which is what it was, to a legal contract, so a legally binding contract. So home, for the workers at least, was now to be a place of stability and virtue, um, where the responsibility of domestic labor and childcare rested on the shoulders of the woman. So following this, the level of surveillance, let's call it, of sexual activities actually increased through the 18th and 19th century. So in the individualistic spirit of capitalism, the target of this repression was no longer sinful acts, but very specifically sodomites, like a type of person, a type of disorderly person. And with the expansion of capitalist market, these repressive morals were actually transported uh, to the Americas, to Africa, Asia, to the Middle East. So imperialism, racism, and LGBT oppression kind of marched hand in hand during this time. Um, 
yeah, various colonized people were demonized, um, sexually primitive, corrupt, habitual sodomites. So the legacy of this can actually be seen today in many foreign colonies. So history of class society is the history of repression to one degree or another of people who don't really fit in the one woman, one man kind of framework. Um, but the idea that this oppression, like oppression of women, arose from class society, that idea really gives us a hint about how we can actually end this oppression forever. So capitalism came into the state of history with blood dripping from every pore in the words of Marx, And it has maintained exploitation and oppression of billions of people. But it has also created um, a class that can really carry out the fight against the system that is the working class. So from the 19th century uh, to today, you see countless attempts by the working class to change society by overthrowing capitalism. Um, but the struggle of the working class is not really merely for uh, liberation from economic exploitation. The labor movement in general, but also the Marxist movement, has always been a part, uh, part of the fight against oppression. So in all of its forms. So on the question of gender, for example, Marx and Engels explicitly called um, in the Communist Manifesto um, for the abolition of the bourgeois family, where uh, women and children essentially became slaves of the man of the household. So it is no coincidence that the first LGBT rights organization, although they didn't really call it that, they called it the Lenin organization, was born in 1897 in Germany, home to the largest Marxist party in the world at the time. So this organization, called the uh, Scientific Humanitarian Committee, mainly worked to decriminalize homosexuality um, in the empire based on scientific debate and improve the lives of homosexuals uh, with support from the German Social Democratic Party, which was a Marxist party at the time. But there's a really interesting history there, but perhaps the best example for us today, looking back, of how the class struggle of the workers can advance the cause of LGBT people is actually the Russian Revolution of 1917. So in 1917, uh, workers in Russia, for the first time in history, took power into their hands and at least began the social transformation of society. So the Bolshevik Revolution really changed the lives of millions, not only in political and economic terms, but also in regard to family as well. So before the revolution, Russia was an um, extremely backwards country. Um, and it was ruled by an autocratic Tsar, and it was a very uh, repressive regime. So the vast majority of people lived, um, honestly, a brutal existence on the land uh, in small, isolated communities that were dominated by the local lords, uh, the church, and sexual conservatism. So husbands were legally entitled to beat their wives, and sodomy was punishable by exile and forced labor in Siberia. Although after the revolution, the Soviet government actually granted women the same rights as men. So they legalized divorce, and soon actually became the first country to legalize abortion. So they intensively developed social services to provide the um, economic foundations for liberation from family duties. So this included nurseries, public canteens, laundries, day hospitals, many other things. But at the same time, even though Soviet Russia might seem like an unlikely place for this to happen, homosexuality was decriminalized. So we shouldn't be anachronistic here and have to understand that this development in its historical context. So this did not happen because Lenin was a fan of like RuPaul's Drag Race or something. Um, it happened because the Bolsheviks understood that the fight for socialism meant a united struggle against all forms of oppression. So in the struggle, workers have no interest in continuing the oppression of women or LGBT people the same way they have no interest in maintaining racism, xenophobia, or any other ideological tool of the ruling class that only serves to divide us. 
So today, some bourgeois historians actually like to argue that this was actually an oversight, that the Bolsheviks just missed this little gay detail, you know? But what these people ignore is that the Soviet government actually actively made links with the growing LGBT organization in Germany that I was talking about. And they actually sent delegates to the sexual reform congresses throughout the 1920s. Um, Georgi Chichren, I think that was his name, an openly gay Bolshevik, was appointed the Commissar for Foreign Affairs in 1918, which is crazy. Um, and I think the Soviet state's attitude can really be summed up by a quote um, uh, by Dr. Grigory Batskis, who was one of the Soviet delegates to the Sexual Reform Congress in Berlin. So he said, as for homosexuality, sodomy, or whatever other forms of sexuality that are considered as moral violations uh, by European legal codes, Soviet law treats them just the same as so-called natural intercourse. All forms of intercourse are private matters. Quite cool. Um, so there are unfortunately very limited reports of LGBT life in Soviet Russia during this time, but many accounts exist highlighting the little homosexual world of uh, St. Petersburg, which embraced bathhouses, balls, parties, my favorite, women's friendship circles. So good. Um, there's even a report, actually, of the Commissary of Justice recognizing a lesbian marriage in 1927 on the basis of mutual consent. Although the reality was, outside of St. Petersburg, at least 80% of the population still lived in small, isolated, rural communities that I was talking about, and all prejudices did persist. So revolution is not a one-day event, but it's a process. So the old does not uniformly and immediately give way to the new. So for Russia, uh, the difficulties in constructing a new world uh, were shaped by economic collapse, famine, um, and war that left the revolution fighting for its life. So the basic premise of socialism is that liberation from oppression can only be achieved if the material conditions exist to build a society without class inequality. So the economic backwardness of Russia meant that spreading the revolution to more advanced economies like Germany was essential. But this is outside the scope of this presentation, but this did not happen, unfortunately. So the material resources necessary for the revolution's survival were being drained away, and soon a state bureaucracy uh, under the leadership of Joseph Stalin took power. So given the lack of a material base for de developing familial relationships on a more advanced um, social level, um, the traditional family slowly made a comeback uh, in Soviet society. And the Stalin Stalinist bureaucracy actually saw a source of stability for the regime in this. So instead of relying on the or urban workers that had been slowly overcoming prejudices against LGBT people, the regime actually relied on the backwards elements uh, of the country. So gradually, this bureaucracy eliminated all remnants of Soviet democracy and actually physically exterminated the Marxists who led the revolution. So in 1934, homosexuality was recriminalized as bourgeois deviation, um, punishable with prison sentences. And a year later, divorce was severely restricted, and recognition of free partnerships was abolished, and by 1936, abortion was once made again, uh, made illegal. Um, in Trotsky's words, uh, dogma of family had become the cornerstone of triumphant socialism. So this homophobic position later deeply affected many communist parties across the world that come from this tradition. So this is actually a really important point. Yeah, you often hear um, gross caricature of Marxism that for us it's class struggle first and everything else is secondary. But this is nowhere near the truth. But unfortunately, this ideological deadweight of Stalinism did a lot of damage in really acting like this caricature. So homophobia was rampant in many Stalinist and Maoist groups throughout the century. 
And all this did was repelling good activists, really, uh, from what they thought was Marxism. Um, so while this was kind of happening in Soviet Russia, the bourgeoisie on the world scale also cracked down on the left in the aftermath of World War II. So in the US, homosexuality was still illegal, and LGBT people were largely seen as sexual psychopaths. So this was the epoch of McCarthyism also. Um, where anti-communism and homophobia were actually really closely intertwined. So McCarthy himself had actually jokingly told the press once, and um, excuse my language here, it's a quote. He says, if you want to be against McCarthy boys, you've got to be a communist or a cocksucker. Yeah, I know, I know. So in the 50s, the main organization fighting for homosexual rights uh, in the country, at the time called the homophile movement, which I don't love, yeah, I know. Um, mostly remain on the margins of society. So most LGBT groups at the time, they were trying to establish uh, like a dialogue, a more soft approach towards um, the government to win some legal rights with very little success, if I'm honest. So like any emancipation movement, there were many disagreements among the leadership about ideas, methods, tactics. Some members um, advocated for more radical measures, while some looked to convince liberal politicians. So, this ultimately reflected, and still does to this day, reflects a different class perspective within the movement. So during this time, many LGBT people didn't actually join the organization, uh, not only because of this kind of ideological confusion or confused perspectives, but they also did not want to out themselves. At the time, LGBT people were routinely targeted by police. Um, I have a stat here. Between 1959 and 1963, more than 1,000 people were arrested annually in New York City for homosexual activities or cross-dressing. So in June 1969, a gay bar named Stonewall Inn, so I think you all know, okay, yeah. It was raided by the cops. So initially the general feeling was that this was yet another routine harassment by the cops, but in the next couple of days, frustration actually started to be felt in the community. So as Marxists love to say, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. So four days later, uh, when cops led a second raid of Stonewall, patrons actually refused to collaborate with them. So all the accumulated anger over decades really culminated in a massive riot. So rioters threw pennies, bottles, cobblestones, bricks um, at the cops while chanting gay power. So as one rioter said, uh, that night the police ran from us, the lowliest of the low. So these riots continued to spread, culminating in a spontaneous gathering of thousands outside Stonewall. So this was really the precise moment of radicalization of the LGBT liberation, like on a global scale, really, soon sparking an unprecedented wave of gay activism. So gay and lesbian activists now wanted the movement to be more militant and to ally itself with the rest of the left. So in the fight against racism and against the Vietnam War, um, and in the end, the radical wing uh, formed a separate organization called the Gay Liberation Front. You may have heard about them. So if you haven't, I will read the beginning of their declaration. Uh, we are a revolutionary group of men and women formed with the realization that complete sexual liberation for all people cannot come about unless existing social institutions are abolished. We, like everyone, uh, everyone else, are treated as commodities. We're told what to feel, what to think. We identify ourselves with all the oppressed, the Vietnamese struggle, the third world, the blacks, the workers, all those oppressed by this rotten, dirty, vile, fucked up capitalist conspiracy. So this radical layer, perhaps unsurprisingly, very quickly came into conflict with the more conservative leadership of the existing organizations who did not really want to display gay power or risk antagonizing the liberal allies of the city's government. 
So I think we all know um, similar elements exist today in the LGBT movement who usually want to keep the movement in, within kind of safe channels that are safe for the establishment. So this is actually an important point I want to underline. So the movement for LGBT emancipation is not homogenous. I think we, we have to kind of realize this now. Like you always have more liberal types who don't want to rock the boat. But you have radical leaders who seek to link the uh, who seek to link the fight against oppression to the fight against capitalism. And history shows that radical struggle, mass mobilization, it pays off. And the radicalism of the Stonewall riot made much more to advance our cause than supporting liberal politicians. And this legacy is actually where pride comes from, by the way. And uh, I mean, you better believe that the police and corporations weren't actually there in the first pride parade in 1970. Um, yeah, despite what they're doing now, you know. Um, unfortunately, after the mass mobilization of the 70s in many countries, in the 80s, you had a general downturn of, uh, in the class struggle, which impacted all layers of the working class and the oppressed. So as we probably all know, the 80s um, were also a particularly dark period um, for the community. The AIDS epidemic was ongoing, um, and it killed over 100,000 people by the end of the decade, actually. So an overwhelming majority were gained by men and trans women, and bourgeois governments across the globe did nothing. They, the ruling class actually took this as an opportunity to initiate a campaign dubbing AIDS as the gay plague. And really, it served to cut across the hard-earned solidarity um, built through common struggle. So this increased isolation of LGBT people and the general lull in revolutionary struggle during the CPOC led to the feeling that Society was not to be reconstructed, like what the Gay Liberation Front was proposing, uh, but to be abandoned. So soon, heterosexism was defined as the enemy, not the wider system of oppression or exploitation. So during this time in the 90s, we see organizations like Queer Nation starting to form, aiming to distance themselves from society at large, uh, with the actual slogan, we hate straights. So, yeah, I mean, you know. Um, soon, the entire movement fell into the trap of identity politics. So reje rejecting the idea that mass political struggle can solve the problems of a specific group. So for them, the idea of solidarity with others became impossible. So this actually led to, very soon led to a mass fragmentation of the movement with different identities within the umbrella, kind of pointing fingers at each other. So as Marxists, we know that the separatism of one group from the other will not actually abolish oppression as if there are still bosses and workers on both sides. But nonetheless, these views soon pervaded in many social movements, forcing the struggle, including the LGBT struggle, into a state of paralysis since the 90s. So, um, like I mentioned, so the 80s and 90s were marked by, um, interesting water. Yeah, so like I mentioned, the 80s, 90s, they were marked by demobilization and a retreat from class struggle at large. The Soviet Union had dissolved, and many people actually stopped believing that there was an alternative to capitalism at all. So in this kind of vacuum of hope, um, that led to the popularization of certain theories in the academic world uh, that rejected generalizable processes or objective reality, putting more importance or more of an emphasis to subjective narratives and language. So one particular strain I would like to discuss today is um, queer theory. So Marxists take the fight against oppression very seriously, and as such, we need to be as serious about what theoretical framework we're actually using in this fight. 
So queer theory centers on the question of individual identity. So it's not really a unified, coherent theory as it refrains from having common definitions. But it nonetheless operates on a certain philosophical premise uh, that we need to discuss. So the aim of queer theory, in the words of uh, prominent queer theorist uh, Anamur Jagos, who actually wrote the book uh, on queer theory, um, is to make sexuality visible as a cultural product entirely permeated by relations of power. So perhaps the most defining contribution to queer theory is the book Gender Trouble by Judith Butler. So in this book, Butler focuses on the individual who kind of describes as caught in a web of power relations and oppression under the permanent stress of trying to meet the demands of the system. So this could be having to be a hardworking and strong man or a good understanding mother or a career woman. So it's not really hard to understand why these ideas um, were attractive to many LGBT people. So often we can feel isolated in a society that tells us we don't fit in. And the language of queer theory can actually feel quite validating um, in this sense. The problem is that as soon as we dig a bit deeper, um, they turn out to be a dead end for anyone who's actually trying to change things. So according to Butler, uh, gender identity is not natural, but it's created performatively. So this means on the basis of acts determined by socially established norms and discourse. So it is this artificially produced identity that actually gives us the idea that in nature, there exists two sexes. So sex is not real and is only culturally constructed. So as an extension to that, gender identity and sexual orientation are also cultural fiction that is produced by discourse and power relations in society. So I think some of this might be familiar to some of you. It is quite, we, I think we all hear this quite often now. Though here we have a couple of problems. So it is a given that my consciousness is going to be strongly influenced by my social Right? But does that make it not real? So I would say no. So my consciousness, including my gender identity or my sexuality, it reflects the conditions, the real conditions of my existence, both natural or social. And on a larger scale, this will evolve with the evolution of society, as we've seen historically, talking about different stages of human development. It is also the objective truth that my sexual anatomy, that might be different than other people's, exists independently from my or society's ideas about it. So biological sex is not a product of culture. Society's attitude towards the strict categorization of it might be, but even then, culture itself is not an arbitrary, accidental, idea-led phenomenon. As I explained, or attempted to explain in the beginning, um, it emerges from the material basis of society. And it is not trans-historical, as Butler explicitly claims it to be. So for queer theory, our relations that determine the ruling discourse are not an institution, nor do they have a structure that can be described. So in this vein, every resistance to power is only an expression of power itself, and it ultimately serves stability. So in Butler's own words, full-scale transcendence from power is an impossible fantasy. So what we can get out of this confusing language, honestly, is that oppression comes from discourse meaning from ideas that we cannot escape from. So as Marxists, we reject this idea and all its depressing conclusions. Because my question is, how on earth can I fight for sexual liberation using this as my theoretical framework? Simply put, I cannot. So I see and experience oppression, but I have abandoned the material class analysis of society, so I cannot really see the historical causes for this oppression. Then I raise this oppression to a metaphysical quasi-godlike entity of power on which everything depends. So what is left to do about this power? So 
Judith Butler says that in order to expose the illusion of sexes, we should parody gender identities through, and I quote, cultural practices of drag, cross-dressing, and the sexual stylization of butch femme identities. Cool. Another queer theorist says that there should be new terms for identity, a new grammar developed, and a new ethic drawn up. So another feminist writer uh, who's close to um, queer theory, Nancy Fraser, says this, and I think it's quite self-explanatory. She goes, um, the good news is that we do not need to overthrow capitalism in order to remedy the economic disadvantage of gays, although we may well need to overthrow it for other reasons. The bad news is that we need to transform the existing status order and restructure the relations of recognition. So you can kind of see the extreme pessimism of this view, but queer theory does not aim to change society. It only aims to change how society conceives uh, what queer is or what it could be. So it's not surprising careerists within left-wing organizations take up these ideas to evade the actual responsibility of leading an actual struggle against discrimination with strikes, with mass protests, and instead focus on demands on language reforms for quotas, cultural free spaces, or rainbow-colored crosswalks, I don't know. The aim of achieving a humane culture and language is understandable, and it is correct. But the political orientation of creating a new language of equality without also tackling the real social inequality is a dangerous illusion. And honestly, in the end, it's an impasse. So a free culture can only be born out of the common struggle of the emancipation of the working class. And by omitting the class question, methods and tactics that actually flow from queer theory um, actually can serve as an ideological justification for capitalist forces to present themselves as LGBT friendly and paint a progressive friendly image of themselves. So every year, thousands of dollars are spent on gender studies professorships, queer studies scholarships, and numerous articles are written on how combat drones are queer, actually, or how to queer business management in order to produce seemingly radical ideas that are in reality completely non-threatening to the ruling class and its institutions. Meanwhile, we see corporations like Coca-Cola or, I don't know, Delta Airlines exploit tens of thousands of people, many of them LGBT, in terrible working conditions, but support LGBT campaigns in their companies, hand out free alcohol at Pride, I don't know. So many LGBT activists are actually openly against the co-opting of the resistance by corporate pride, by rainbow capitalism. But when we look at queer theory, it does not really offer any ideas necessary to fight this usurpation. It is part of the ruling ideology that individualizes and camouflages our exploitations and repression while dividing the united struggle against the system because united struggle is inherently alien to identity politics. So once again, it is not surprising that these theories gained ground in a period of lull in class struggle. And as capitalism sinks deeper into crisis, as we see every day today, we will see class struggle sharpen once again. And this, as always, as has always been the case in the history, will have a clarifying effect in the ideological sphere of the movement. So since the 2000s, we have seen many countries passing laws against discrimination and for civil rights. So these important steps have been achieved thanks to the constant pressure by both LGBT activism, but also the growing support in society at large, including among non-LGBT people. So today, the banner of civil rights has been taken up not only in the left, but also by sections of the capitalist class and of their political representatives. So today we have things like International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Transphobia, promoted by the European Union, and we see resolutions adopted by the United Nations on this question 
so on and so forth. But we cannot harbor any illusion nor have an ambiguous approach towards any of this. So these liberal governments and the enlightened sectors of the bourgeoisie are the same people who support dictatorship in various parts of the world where LGBT people are literally beheaded. So Trudeau can cry as much as he wants on TV about the shameful past of Canada, or butcher the LGBT acronym as often as he likes. I don't know if you guys have seen it. No, he could do all of that, but it means nothing when he's still supplying arms to Saudi Arabia. And the same is the case with all the major European countries that, while legalizing gay marriage, supported the LCC regime in Egypt, who continuously rained terror on the Egyptian LGBT community. There are many more examples of this, but yeah, limited by time. Thank you. Um, this hypocrisy can be pushed even further in how reactionary it can be. So the defense of the rights of LGBT people can actually become a pretext for supporting imperialist policies. So this is very clearly the case, and I don't think it should be a surprise for anyone, when we're told that Israel is the country in the Middle East with the most advanced legislation on LGBT rights. Does this authorize Israel to massacre, to bomb, and to impose embargoes on the Palestinians for apartheid, whose administrations are less concerned about legal um, legislation on civil rights at the moment? So, or in the Netherlands, you see the right wing who uses LGBT rights as basically a shield to limit so-called homophobic immigration, which is just, that's just Islamophobia, like that's nothing else. So if you lose sight of the overall picture, and especially if you abandon the class perspective, we can very quickly end up in the camp of reaction, as some LGBT rights groups have unfortunately done. So these groups are more concerned with winning positions of power and more than willing to turn a blind eye to what their government friends are doing at the moment. So for the bourgeoisie, making concessions um, on civil rights has both an economic and a political objective, in today's climate at least. So economically, LGBT people have simply become another market sector. So a gay-friendly company profile is just a tool for marketing and nothing else. So IKEA has no problem putting pictures of gay couples in its catalog, uh, provided they have the money to buy that, I don't know, like outdoor kitchen island or whatever. Um, and on the political front, we see a section of the ruling class actually trying to diffuse a possible social, like a field of possible conflicts. Uh, so they take on board what can be absorbed into the system, uh, mostly appealing to more moderate conservative leaders of the LGBT movement, while at the same time promoting xenophobic, anti-worker, draconian austerity policies and cuts in social services that affect us all. Um, so does all of this, what I just said, does that mean that we don't care about civil rights? We underestimate the question of civil rights. No. <laughs> we fight for the full recognition and application of civil rights, but we cannot lose sight of which side of the barricade we're on in the class struggle. Because at the end of the day, any rights that are granted under capitalism are under the constant threat of being taken away when the class struggle sharpens and the ruling class opts for more uh, reactionary approaches. So liberals who smile during photos, uh, for photos during pride may grant minor rights, uh, but we see them time after time betray their promises, carry out austerity, and fail to alleviate the problems of the working class. So this inevitably leads to a certain polarization in society. So many turn left, uh, as we've seen, to fight the establishment, fight against capitalism, but some people will fall for the demagogy of the far right. So deceptions of liberals actually ultimately serve to embolden the right wing. And this is how you get self-proclaimed allies of like, um, 
the LGBT uh, community, like the Obamas and the Trudeaus of the world, eventually leading to the Trumps and Bolsonaros of the world. So no minor conquest is really guaranteed to last as long as capitalism remains intact. Um, and maybe more importantly, and I kind of want to emphasize this, we need to like seriously ask ourselves, what good are the rights that we have as LGBT people when exploitation continues? So how can I truly say that I have civil rights guaranteed in employment, healthcare, or housing when I'm not guaranteed a job? I, the healthcare system is collapsing and the housing market is once again in crisis. What use is the right to marry when I dedicate my, all my time and energy every day, uh, to dedicate my energy to the boss all day and come home exhausted, not able to do anything really. So once we enter the problems of everyday life, a class division very starkly opens up within the LGBT movement because everyday life varies greatly depending on which class we belong to. So, and this is precisely why we need to break with the bourgeoisie, no matter if they're LGBT or not. So, one example is the Liberal Party leader, Kathleen Wynne, for example, who became the Premier of Ontario in 2014 and was the first openly lesbian politician to hold that office. So, and yeah, she implemented austerity, hiked hydro prices massively, and she was eventually ditched by the electorate in 2018. And this is only one example of many of a rising layer of LGBT people becoming part of the establishment. So we have many others like Pete Buttigieg, Kirsten Cinema. I don't know if people remember that. Yeah. So what we precisely need to do is overthrow capitalism and free ourselves of the ruling class. So with control over productive resources, we can use all the wealth that we are already collectively creating in a planned and harmonious manner. So not for the profits of the few, but for our needs as a society. So housework needs to be socialized. And the care and education of children must be socialized and be of high quality. So everyone should have the right to a home. Working hours should be reduced so that everyone has the time and energy to live their life. So the LGBT community organizations could receive the resources and funding they require to address the impacts of generations of long discrimination and violence on our communities. But how do we achieve all of that? So history has shown that it is mass struggle that gets the goods. So in our fight against oppression, we, as Marxists, propose the methods of class struggle. LGBT people need the act of solidarity of the entire working class for us to actually make it even a dent in this, you know? So this is also how we can overcome oppressive discourse, by the way, to use a term from queer theory. So in a revolutionary situation, let's say in a strike, where we need to unite and fight side by side, LGBT or not, uh, we see prejudices actually start to break down. And this is precisely why capitalists want us divided. Because um, it, it serves nobody to be a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever. We see prejudices start to break down when we actually need to be together, uh, fighting against uh, our common enemy. You know, um, And this is also why we cannot afford to get distracted by theories that declaw the revolutionary potential of our movement by opposing a united class struggle and dividing the working class into even smaller entities. So we need unity and we need solidarity. So in our fight for civil rights and equality, we also cannot really lose track of the fact that ultimately capitalism remains the biggest barrier to true emancipation. So instead of a system where a minority of bosses um, rule our lives, we should fight for the working class to run society. So democratic oversight over our workplaces 
uh, would be important to preventing and addressing instances of transphobia, homophobia, other forms of discrimination. Similarly, on campuses here, if staff, faculty, including bigoted professors or students act in a discriminatory or abusive manner, they can be democratically held accountable. So it is true that the struggle for a humane culture is not simply over and done with after a revolution, and all prejudices won't disappear overnight. But the revolution creates the conditions where the united common struggle uh, for such a culture can be developed freely. So only on this basis of collective and democratic ownership and control, that is the socialist organization of society, can we achieve genuine liberation and equality. So only on this material basis will we be able to break with the morality perpetuated by the bourgeoisie in terms of the structure of family, gender, sexual orientation. And finally, only then will we be able to throw patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, all these products of class society into the dustbin of history. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.